0: at the other end of the spectrum you would take the the view that when you read Romans 10 and you read Galatians 3 it seems obvious or it seems most natural that Paul is telling you what he himself thinks and that therefore you have to go back to Leviticus 18:5 and understand Leviticus 18:5 even in its own context back there not in positive terms but in some quote-unquote legalistic way. Now, um, Meredith Klein would take this position, but he takes this position, of course, within the context of his general um, concern to argue that you have to understand the law and the life of Israel and so on in typological fashion in other words, uh, he's very concerned uh, to, uh, to make clear that he's not saying that the Old Testament is teaching uh, salvation by works, but that typologically, when you look at uh, the nation of Israel and, and, and its whole structure, there is a works principle that is being set forth and emphasized uh, to make uh, a, a very strong point about that theological uh, conception, that um, Uh, there is a principle of obedience to law and as you know uh, meredith klein uh, feels that it is essential to safeguard that because otherwise you undermine the principle of christ's own work his own act of obedience and so on so there you have the two if you will extremes Um, you know they're at either end of the spectrum there is, I think, a, um, a third way of looking at this whole thing. Actually, there are probably 10 or 15 different ways. Uh, <clears throat> Ritterbaus, <clears throat> although he does not address the issue quite in the way in which I am formulating it here, uh, seems to me to um, be on target when he argues in, uh, in his book on Paul, on pages 153 and following, that surely the hardening of the Israelites lay in their failing to appreciate the deeper principle of the law, the deeper principle of the law, and in concluding that the righteousness could come from the law itself. And then, um, Ritterbos makes uh, this statement. Paul, in Paul's experience, therefore, we're talking about, quote, the law before Christ and the law without Christ. That's on page 154. When Paul speaks about the law, uh, and I think this is what Ritterboss is, is getting at, he's not simply making a, um, a bare statement about the law. But he's thinking about the law, that Paul is thinking about the law in a particular context, namely in a particular redemptive historical context. The law, if you view it before Christ and without Christ. Paul appreciates the good function of the law in the light of grace. That is clear from some other passages that uh, you're all familiar with. Romans 8, 3 and so on. But, Here's another quotation that comes from page 155. In the antithesis with Judaism, this function of the law, this positive function of the law, does not arise. But rather, the ultimate consequence is drawn from what takes place when the sequence of salvation and law is reversed, and the law itself is made a means of salvation. Now, now, I myself would would want to nuance all of that a little better, and I'm not sure that I can do it, um, because. For, but I want to nuance it because for some people, what Ritterbaugh's saying is pretty much what Daniel Fuller is saying. Uh, it's a misinterpretation of the law, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here, because Ritter. I mean Ritterbaugh's, uh, w- When you see the way in which he's handling this whole thing, uh, he has a. To my mind, a much more, um, much clearer grasp, a much more balanced appreciation for the various elements that have to come into the whole picture, and he doesn't simply say, "Well, this is not Paul's view; this is, uh, you know, the Judaizers' misinterpretation." That's not quite the way that Ritterboss handles it, but he does recognize, and I think there's an element that that uh, you know you've seen from the. The, chapter, the last chapter that you've read that I want to uh, do justice uh, to that it's almost impossible for Paul when he is struggling with these Judaizers to refer to the law and, and uh, somehow isolate that from the synagogue context in which that law is functioning. Now, it, it's not easy to um, formulate clearly and, and you know in black and white and, and uh, anticipate every possible uh, ambiguity in in this in this attempt that I'm making to, to find a, a middle way, uh, I don't think that um, uh, John Barry quite succeeds. You know, in his commentary on Romans, um, he what he does is to say, well, of course. Leviticus 18.5 does not teach legalism. But, if you just look at the form of it, you know it could certainly be used by, by a legalist as a way of, of uh, proposing his viewpoint. And uh, again, you see, you might argue, well, that also sounds like a misinterpretation of the law. But, but I think you really need to be careful here, uh, don't, don't mix Daniel Fuller's approach and that of some other people who have sort of taken a similar uh, understanding uh, with the way in which people like Murray and Ritterboss handle it, because um, Murray and Ritterboss say lots of other things that need to be kept in perspective and that actually contradict some of the things that Daniel Fuller has been trying to, uh, to get across. So um, the bottom line uh, in my way of thinking is that um, whereas Paul is not suggesting, I mean, I I just don't think that this comports with uh, the way in which he deals with the law elsewhere. Paul is not suggesting that the law was given uh, and that it taught some kind of uh, legalism, not even in uh, in Klein's um, interpretation of it, because I, I still have lots of difficulties grasping of what uh, you know what Klein's view would mean in in the life um, in the daily life experience of, of an Israelite who um, you know reads Psalm one and uh, the Israelite says that uh, in the law he finds his delight. Uh, how to reconcile that with the notion that the Israelite also, given his typological context, uh, must understand the law as teaching a works principle, which condemns him. So even in Klein's, um, you know, rather original way of trying to handle the problem, I don't think um, that's quite what Paul has in view here. I think that when Paul quotes Leviticus eighteen five, it is not simply a jewish misinterpretation of the law but neither is it the 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 bare law if you will it is the law but it is the law as it has tended to function or as it functions when we do not take into account redemptive history and in particular uh, the fruition of that in the person of christ Now this line of thought, I think, is supported by Galatians 1:14. Remember that in, in um, Galatians 1:14 we talked about that briefly, uh, when Paul talks about his own uh, uh, experience in Judaism. and he specifically focuses attention there, not on the law by itself, but on the oral tradition and therefore the nomistic interpretation of the synagogue. Remember when, when we were talking about that passage, I said, don't, don't lose sight of this. Uh, this may be some kind of a clue to us. Uh, Paul is taking pride in um, his progress in Judaism, but not not uh, just the Old Testament as such, but specifically the way in which the Old Testament was understood uh, given the, the, the whole rabbinic line of uh, interpretation. I think further support for this can be found in, in the broader understanding of Jesus' polemic to the Pharisees. As I mentioned before, um, their legalism really consisted in lowering the, the demands of the law so that it might become fulfillable. And by the way, Machin, in his book on, on the origin of post religion, uh, says something very much like that in, uh, on pages 178 and following. 178 and following. E.P. Sanders, in one of his articles, states categorically that Paul disagrees with Leviticus 18.5. I think what we need to say is that he disagrees with um, a general perception of the passage that concludes from it that righteousness comes through the law. Or more specifically, and, and here we're getting out to the uh, litty-gritty, uh, a conclusion that the law was given to give life. And uh, that is why I focus attention on uh, Galatians 3.21 in, in uh, part of the chapter, the end of the chapter, because that to me is the, is the uh, giveaway that uh, paul again is not thinking simply of the law pure and simple but of the understanding that the law is able to give life and he says if that were true if a law had been given that could give life then you're really in problem in trouble because what that means What that means then is that righteousness comes from law and not from promise, not from faith. And if that is true, then you have a real antithesis between law and promise. And what he's trying to argue is that there is no antithesis or contradiction between law and promise. And the reason there isn't such contradiction is that The promise and the law had different functions and different purposes. You only get into a contradicting situation if you fall into the trap of thinking that the purpose the law was given was to give life. It was not given to give life. Now, uh, you see what's going on. Leviticus 18.5 says, he who does these things will live by them. And there's even a passage in, in Romans 7 uh, where Paul says the law was given for life, remember? And uh, you know maybe we need to do a little bit more work to try to figure out exactly how Paul distinguishes between those two things. But obviously, he is seeing some distinction between recognizing the legitimate sense in which law is linked to life on the one hand, and the illegitimate sense, uh, namely that law has no power to bring life. It is not a life-giving principle. If it were, then you do have a contradiction between uh, law and promise. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that is a perspective that is part of the picture but uh, i don't think it's the whole story i don't think it's the whole story or, or to put it differently when leviticus 18 5 says that uh, he who does these things will live by them um, if an israelite had been said oh by the way this applies only to your temporal life and it has nothing to do with uh, your relationship to god more generally considered i think they they would have I mean, you need a split personality to be able to handle that one. And and that's where I have a problem, you see. In short, then, um, Leviticus 18.5, in its context, should be understood as a gracious statement. For those who depend on God's grace, the path of obedience is a path of life, because God's word is life. It's as simple as that. I don't think Paul disagrees with that. Uh, And so, the only way out of the problem, I think, is to recognize that uh, there is this element of uh, of how the law is being viewed. The Judaizers take Leviticus 18.5 from the perspective of self-righteousness, the giving of life by human obedience. But in fact, life, you know, fully considered proceeds only from the Spirit, who is received by faith. Uh, Machen, his notes in Galatians here uh, says, it was not merely that salvation had to be obtained in a way that was independent of the law. That is no adequate statement of the case, no. The stupendous obstacle which the law interposed against salvation had to be overcome. So the law, you see, actually becomes an obstacle unless you uh, realize that it is not by your obedience to the law uh, that, uh, that, that life comes to you, this life-giving power, which comes only from the Spirit. Right. <clears throat> well, um, I'm only trying to do justice to why Paul, in Romans 7, can, can say, Hey, uh, entole... <clears throat> uh zoein, the, the commandment that leads to life. And he goes even further, and, and this is very important, I think. Uh, in, in Romans 7, he even calls the law pneumatike, pneumaticos. I mean, um, pneuma, wait a minute here. I thought uh, that's precisely the contrast. And, and what I'm saying is that from one perspective, Paul can have these very positive things to say about the law, there is a sense in which it leads to life, and 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 the best that I can do in response to you is what I said earlier, that the path of obedience is a path of life, because God's word is life. Um, his words are life, therefore if you, if you obey what God is saying, you participate in His life. Um, but, on the other hand, this notion of zoiopoeil, zo- this life-giving power, uh, I think Paul, in a very self-conscious and explicit way, uh, limits it to the work of the Spirit. And as something which, well, you know, Romans 8.3 is, I think, the, the, the key passage here. What the law could not do, God had to do by sending His Son. So there's something the law cannot do which I can only identify with that term zoopoieo. Again, I think that's part of it. Uh, And, you know, reformed theologians have made the point that when you look at the law, I mean, over against dispensationalism, reformed theologians have made the point that when you look at the law in the Old Testament, you cannot tear it out from the context of of God saying to his people, I'm your God, I have redeemed you. So that initial relationship, covenant relationship has already been established and then the law is given as the path of obedience and therefore the path of life within that context and that is you know the same thing that we find with abraham uh abraham is said to uh to to have believed and and uh uh, his faith was counted as righteousness and then two chapters later say okay now hear my commandments Uh, walk before me and be perfect all right so that's part of it but again i don't think it's the whole of it and the reason why I don't think it's the whole of it is that, and I, I you know, said something about this earlier when we were talking about the beginning of chapter three, that, that Paul is not simply focusing on the beginning of the Christian life. But having begun the spirit, do you not complete it with the flesh? So something is going on here, you know, and, and one way that I can deal with it again in systematic the, uh, theological categories is to say, yeah, this is something introduced in the middle of the Christian experience, but Paul's point is that, that if you accept this now, it has implications for, for what that relationship was based on to begin with. And, and therefore, by implication, you're undermining the principle of how you came into fellowship with God. But I have to confess, Paul does not quite say that. You know, he does not formulate it quite that explicitly. Yeah. I don't know that I can say any more than I said already. That um, uh, it is very very difficult for me to conceive of um, of this typological understanding of Israel that, in some some sense, is very clearly to be distinguished from from the Israelite's relationship to God uh, in terms of salvation more generally. In other words, it is the um, the conception of how the law functions as as a works principle that I I cannot fully, I mean, I think obviously Klein has something there that needs to be understood and taken seriously. But I can't quite uh, get on board, because the only way that that Klein's whole thing is going to work is if you really um, take his position consistently all down down the line. And uh, I just don't see how you can do that. Well, I don't think this passage fits either, and and that's part of the comment that I made at, uh, um, let me see if I can find that uh, quickly. Um, See, in chapter three, um, verse 18, uh, this on page 126, uh, the second paragraph, If my understanding of the argument is correct, then it appears that we cannot really appeal to verse 18 in support of the contention that Paul sees a radical opposition of the law law covenant of Sinai to the principle of inheritance by promise. Now that is, see that's a different verse, that's where where Paul says, for if inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise. And Klein says, he takes that as one of his proof texts, if you will for this idea that the law is a principle of works and it opposes the principle of of, uh, promise. In fact, I go on to say, it can plausibly be argued that the very burden of the passage is to deny that opposition. Paul is denying the opposition. Klein's reading of Galatians 3 appears to be that Paul's own view of the opposition between law and promise raised the urgent question whether one and not the other. But here, precisely, is where we must inquire into the historical context that called for the Epistle to the Galatians, because the polemic tone of the passage makes plain that Paul is responding to accusations from his Judaizing opponents. And then I do a little bit of mirror reading here, uh, admittedly, but uh, it doesn't seem at all unreasonable to assume that the Judaizers insisted on the compatibility between the Abrahamic and Semitic covenants. I mean, I don't, I don't know that anybody would. Uh, Find fault with that assumption of course the, Jude- the judaizers would have wanted to say of you know the abrahamic covenant the senate covenant they're not opposed to each other uh, well it's it's obvious in a way but it has not affected the the, um, the way people have regulations three so when uh, in verse 17 we read that the law does not set aside the covenant previously established by god uh, although often people infer from that that he is opposing a Judaizing viewpoint, what really is going on is that Paul is probably responding to an accusation that he held that position. He says not at all. And so, in verse 18: uh, If the law, if inheritance is by the law, he is not agreeing with that idea that inheritance is by the law. Um, but rather, he's saying the same thing he says in verse 21. If such and such were the case, then we'd have a problem. But we don't have a problem because the law was given with a different purpose than that which the, the promise uh, was given. Well, um, Hebrews 2.4, uh, I'm not going to spend time on because that I dealt with in some detail in the, in the chapter, but uh, I, I use that first as kind of an example of, of uh, recognizing that while on the surface you may get the idea that Paul is really violating the intention of the Old Testament text, when you reflect on that Old Testament text more generally, particularly when, when you see what I think is fairly obvious that Habakkuk is alluding to Abraham's own life, then everything begins to fall together uh, pretty well and uh, you know paul's theology in general makes it plain that he is not denying the need for faithfulness and perseverance and all of that but uh, that has to be within the context of uh, you know the kind of faith exemplified by abraham and would habakkuk have uh, denied that well of course not and so habakkuk 2 4 which plays almost a passing role here in Galatians 3 becomes the very thesis, you know, the motto of Romans, uh, of the epistle of the Romans, and uh, uh, it is affirmed quite um, uh, emphatically at the beginning, and and then the rest is sort of uh, commentary on it. With regard to, um, oh, and and the other thing is, what I have already um, mentioned briefly, um, that the thesis of verse 11a, that by the law no one is justified before God, that is proven not by Habakkuk 2.4 alone, but by the recognition that while the righteous receive their life through faith, any attempt to be justified by law tends to rule out faith. In other words, it is the linking of Habakkuk 2 and Leviticus 18. So, in the context of the whole passage, and also, in the context of Paul's teaching more generally, I, I don't believe that nomos, uh, in, um, in verse 12 here should be understood in, in some undifferentiated sense. Rather, it is the saving, the supposed saving function of the law that is assumed by the Judaizers and that Paul explicitly denies by the time you get to verse 21. Rather, it is the saving, the supposed saving function of the law that is assumed by the Judaizers and that Paul explicitly denies by the time you get to verse twenty-one. Uh, with, regards to, um, with regard to Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three, um let me just say a couple of things here. Uh, the the Old Testament passage refers to capital crimes, you, you recall. Um, And, you know, there's been some debate as to whether the idea is that after execution um, there was some kind of impalement. And uh, that emphasized the divine curse, but maybe that's a later custom and uh, we don't need to get into all those details. But I think this whole thing throws uh, considerable light on the expression, the offense of the cross, that Paul uses elsewhere and suggest that the crucifixion of Christ was in effect the main obstacle to Saul's conversion. And some people have argued that uh, I think fairly persuasively. Jesus being hanged on the the cross was the clearest proof for Jews that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Because that would mean that he had God's curse on him. And how can you possibly think of, of the promised Messiah as someone cursed by God? But it turns out that this apparent drawback is our very salvation. Because the curse, which was already established there in verse 10 of chapter 3, is now shown to be taken away by Christ himself. Now, when you get to this verse in Burton, you look at Burton's commentary. And when he gets there, you know, it's it's a total disaster. Uh, because first, he begins to distinguish between what the law does and what God does. So now two opposing things Um, then he denies that in God's sight all men are cursed that's not God's perspective that's the law's perspective and then finally since the curse is not God's curse but the curse of the law the deliverance from the curse is not judicial but rather to be released released from the curse is to be released from a false conception of God's attitude and, and there you have, you know, uh, classical liberalism in its full flower. Abelard, uh, you know, in, in modern dress. Uh, so if we think that God deals with us legalistically, that's a curse. Thinking that. And you have to be released from that curse. This is, frankly, a fantastic, but also a very powerful example of the way in which one's theological... Commitment uh, can can blind us to what the text is saying, because in this case, verse thirteen would be saying that the law is monstrous, really, by virtue of its pronouncing a curse on Christ. Now, keep in mind <clears throat> that the connection between twenty-one, twenty-three, uh, and and what Paul is doing with that is not a merely verbal thing. You know. You have qatar, and that's the whole reason he's quoting uh, Deuteronomy 21. But I think it does, again, arise from the polemics of the situation. This time, possibly, a polemic against unbelieving Jews rather than the Judaizers specifically. But that has a, a substance of its own. God allowed Christ to be regarded as a curse because he himself regarded Christ as such that is God cursed Christ I mean that's the point of 2nd Corinthians 521 which I think has a corresponding metonymy you know Um, uh, he who knew no sin was made sin you know just as Christ was made a curse that is he was treated uh, as a sinful being Uh, he was uh, dealt with as someone who had been cursed and then finally, in verse fourteen, you get to the promise of the Spirit, which brings us back full circle. I was talking to somebody down while I was at, at Beeson, who, who thought that he saw a chiastic structure here because you have the Spirit at, toward the beginning of the chapter, um, and and faith, you have faith, and then the Spirit, and then you deal with the question of the curse, and then it sort of expands again. And I, again, whether this is a, I don't think it's a formal chiasm and i don't know how conscious Paul uh, was uh, in in doing that but uh, uh, from a literary point of view there's certainly something powerful here but in those last two verses you know he brings in the whole question of curse the question of faith the question of the promise the question of the spirit and all together uh, i mean that that just think for a minute about a, about all the theology that is encapsulated in verse 14 so that the Gentiles, the Gentile theology, you see, um, so that to them the blessing of Abraham, God's promise to to Abraham, might uh, come in Christ Jesus, so that the promise of the Spirit we might receive through faith. It's all there, you know, and uh, it, it concludes in a rather powerful way. the the theological point that that Paul is trying to make. Now, having said that, now he's got some explaining to do. If all this is true, you know, what's the law doing here anyway? And uh, we'll come back to that after uh, our break. Okay, let's move on to um, this next section. I I want to try to finish, um, at least through verse 25 today, uh, the place of the law. And again, this is a, a pressing problem for Paul. Having said all these things, it just makes it sound as though you know, the law was some sort of mistake. I do think that uh, verse 15 uh, appears to begin a new thought. If the law cannot be justified, cannot, if the law cannot justify, then what is the relationship of the law to the Abrahamic covenant? And I think there are two answers. One, if you want to understand the law, Paul says, you need to appreciate that it is chronologically subsequent to the promise and that has some important implications. Second, it is soteriologically preparatory. Uh, And I'm not particularly proud of of that uh, label, but uh, I think it it does capture at least my understanding of what Paul is trying to get across here. Chronologically subsequent, uh, you have, think about the the structure of of the argument in these verses, 15 through 18. First of all, uh, a human covenant cannot be altered that's the, th- that's the point of verse 15. Second, the promise to the seed is a promise to Christ. That's verse 16. Third point, the law coming later than the promise does not invalidate the promise. That is, the promise viewed as the principle of inheritance. That's what verse 17 says. And then verse 18, there's a fourth element. It's a clarification. He says, Gar, uh, such a a disannulment or, or such invalidating of a promise is precisely what would be involved if the Judaizers are Right that the inheritance is tied to law. And then there is a fifth point, um, namely that the law was given only until the coming of the seed, only until the coming of the seed. I I think that's the way the argument is is built. Now let's look um, in more detail first at verse 16, because that last part of verse 16 that um, uh, to your seed, which is Christ, and, and to and to seeds, uh, uh, and he he does not say to seeds as of many, but uh, as of one, and to your seed, singular, that is Christ. That part, you see, that section does not seem to make sense in the argument, and I think we need, if we're going to make progress, we need to appreciate what appears to be a logical problem. Because it does not seem to make sense in the argument, Burton views it as a parenthesis. So that verse 17, tuto delego, lego, verse 17, resumes the thought of verse 15. So, so Burton takes the whole of verse 16 as a parenthesis, with verse 17 resuming the thought of verse 15. The problem with that, if you view it as a parenthesis, is that what verse 16 says is too central, and how central it is becomes clear when you get to verse 19, because in verse 19, he comes back to that question, that is, until um, the seed should come, that is, the seed to whom it was promised. If we have a parenthesis at all, and I would use, instead of parenthesis, I would say dashes, you see, to, to try to bring out the significance of it. I would put the dashes in the second part of the verse, as I've already suggested, beginning with ulege, and and ending with the uh, end of the verse. And and that portion, 16, verse, verse 16b, would constitute a reminder not a demonstration, but a reminder of the way in which the promise to Abraham relates to Christ. In other words, I would want to argue that verse 16a goes with verse 15. So there you have a complete thought including verse, the whole of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16 then you have that reminder in 16b Oh, don't forget <laughs> that the promise has reference to the seed that which is Christ and then verse 17 is an explanation of the whole thought now If you look at it that way, you still have to ask, what is the point of this parenthetical comment in verse 16b? Uh, There are several possibilities. One is that the Judaizers themselves had interpreted the singular as a reference to the nation, or maybe to Isaac. And what Paul does is to bring in a deeper reference to Christ, the solidarity of Christ with his people. Um, But the, the only problem with that is that the singular, would, in that case, would not disprove the, the Judaizer's claim. So, so I, I don't see how that logically follows. A better way of approaching it is to um, uh, recognize the possibility that there may be a polemic here with the Tar- Targumic tradition, which interprets seed consistently with the word lebanecha, uh, that is, with, to your sons in the plural. And um, if that's what's going on, that you have a, you know, this Targumic tradition that the Judaizers are working with, the appeal to the singular would be quite in keeping with rabbinic methods. Uh, you, know, you have examples of rabbis arguing along those lines. But I think even better, uh, maybe not in total opposition to this second uh, possibility, but um, a better way of, of handling it is to say, and maybe you can have already anticipated what I'm, what I'm, where I'm moving here. It's to say that Paul is not really trying to prove anything with that statement. It is not a proof text. It is not a logical argument as such. He's not trying to prove anything new, but he's merely reminding the readers of what they, and maybe even the Judaizers, would have agreed with anyway. You see, these people, you know, think of themselves as Christians. So to view the seed as referring to Christ, I think, would not necessarily uh, undermine or contradict anything that the Judaizers claimed. Certainly, in in the rabbinic literature, the notion of solidarity is there. So, perhaps the Judaizers would not have objected to this way in which Paul identifies the seed. And you see, having once reminded the readers of the connection between the promise to Abraham, the seed, and Christ, then, by the time he gets to verse 19, the thought can be brought in unobtrusively. And then further, in verses 24 and 25, that same thought can play a very, very fundamental role. So you see what I'm getting at. Maybe we have gotten a little bit um, confused here. Uh, You know, people have spent a lot of time trying to to understand what is this kind of hermeneutics that Paul is using in in focusing on the singular? Does that prove his point? And and what I'm getting at is that at this point, Paul is not trying to, to produce an argument, but simply by calling attention to the singular, remind his readers that, hey, we got to focus here on, on what the ultimate point of this whole thing is, and that is the coming of Christ. Don't forget that, okay? Now let's finish this thing. And now verse 19, he brings it in now uh, and shows how it, how it does relate in a very fundamental way to our understanding of the purpose of the law. Now, if we go then secondly to... Um, verses 15 to 16a, and also verse 17. uh, I think the point there is clear. A ratified agreement cannot be fooled around with. That's that's the point. And uh, that that is made very clearly in in verse 15. Um, Even a human covenant cannot be annulled, sure. And the covenant with which we're concerned was made with Abraham. And, uh, and therefore, it is by implication the promissory principle of that covenant that must inform whatever else God does. If God has made a covenant, not just a human covenant, but a divine covenant, and, and the central thing there is the promissory element, then surely that has to inform everything that you read subsequent to what happens uh, uh, at that time. But you see, the implications of that for our understanding of of the law, that has to be spelled out more clearly. And that's why in verse 17, uh, you have uh, that explanation, that further expansion. Now, see, the way that I would paraphrase verse 17 is to say, let me make the connection perfectly clear to you. The law came a long time after the ratification of the covenant. So it cannot possibly annul the covenant, in such a way as to destroy the promise. Therefore, obviously, the law has to be viewed as subordinate. So when I say that the uh, law is chronologically subsequent, the point of stressing that is to realize the implications it has for how it relates to promise. It is subordinate. To promise, <clears throat> and finally, verse eighteen. Um, and you know, the big question is, what is the gar doing there? Uh, it, it's uh, peculiar to me. You know, why in the commentaries, uh, most commentators, the vast majority of them, don't don't even raise the question. How does the gar function in verse 18? In in what way can you say that verse 18 explains verse 17? And and here's where I bring up what what I mentioned earlier in in the uh, in that chapter six, the Judaizers, no doubt, claimed that their insistence on in the law as inseparable from uh, from the reception of of the inheritance, that that insistence did not destroy the Abrahamic Covenant. I mean, you can be as sure as anything that the Judaizers would have insisted that their their view did not contradict, did not destroy the Abrahamic Covenant. On the contrary, they would have argued that the law was the very way in which such promises would be fulfilled. That means, you see, that the last clause of verse 17 would be a controversial statement. When Paul says that um, you know, the law cannot annul the promise, which is what would happen, you know, if you take in this or that way, that's what's controversial. And Paul I have to address that question. Verse 18 is an an assertion which is drawn from his earlier use of of Habakkuk 2. It is an assertion that the promise for salvation, which is bound with faith, and, on the other hand, the use of the law for salvation, which is bound with works, That is antithetical. As long as you view promise and law as doing the same thing, then you have antithesis, then you have contradiction. Therefore, if inheritance, which is the same as justification, and which is the same as salvation, if the inheritance is by the law, then it couldn't be by the promise, because you cannot have both. And by the way, I think this confirms that in, that in verse twelve the contrast is not merely between faith and law but between inheritance by faith and inheritance by law and I think if if you can see that th- that can really be helpful Isn't, well, even though he Paul simply says Namas in verse twelve, I think what he what he means is A nomus that gives the inheritance. You see, it's it's that whole conception of law being viewed as having a salvific uh, purpose and effect. But, you see, uh, it has already been established that that, um, uh, the inheritance was given by the promise, so it cannot be by the law. for, For Paul, this is a very simple logical thing. Inheritance by promise and inheritance by law are antithetical and incompatible ideas. So if it is by law then it cannot be by if it is by law it cannot be by promise and if it is by promise it cannot be by law. But the conclusion then is, is resounding God has graced you know has given by grace the inheritance through promise. And let me just make a little comment in passing here. You notice the use of the verb atheteo in verse 15. He's concerned with anything that might annul the covenant. Remember, that's the same verb he had used back in chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, and, and obviously he hasn't, he hasn't lost sight of this problem. Uk I will not annul the grace of God. And by the use of Keharista in verse 18, uh, clearly you see that that's still part of, of the whole uh, argument. So then we move on to the next answer. Not only is the law chronologically subsequent, but also within within the context of the plan of salvation, soteriologically considered, redemptive historically considered, you need that to understand the law in its subordinate role, was one of of preparation. The main proposition is what you have in verse 19. uh, What or why, I think why is the best way of handling this. uh, Why, therefore, do we have the law? What's the point of giving the law? Even if you translate it with what, I think that the purpose of the law is clearly in view here. If the law cannot give me righteousness, if it cannot make me an heir, if the Abrahamic promise is all that counts, then why in the world was the law given? And Paul's answer is that the law does count. It's very important. But it counts because of its negative effect. It prepares the way for something else. Now, please keep in mind, before we go any further, that uh, this is not Paul's total view of the law any more than 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul's total teaching about marriage. But I think we need to appreciate that the polemic at hand, the problems that he's dealing with, that is forcing him to deal with a very precise question what is the relationship of the law to the sinner with reference to salvation? And, and the question focused that precisely calls for a very focused answer. Not to deal with everything else that the law may be, including the positive elements that he deals with in Romans 7 and 8 and so on, but something else. Now, verse 19 by itself answer to, answers the question in three parts and the rest of the passage develops these three ideas and that's why you see in the rest of the outline uh, you see B, the law was mediated now that's the point of the very last clause of verse 19 which is expanded in verse 20. Then the next thing that the law was temporary that is the clause in verse 19c expanded in verses 23 to 25 and finally the law had a well-defined purpose that stated in 19b and expanded in verses 21 to 22. So uh, let's look at b, the law was mediated, uh, the end of verse 19 and then ex- further expanded in verse 20. The usual interpretation uh, seems to be that Paul introduces the angels to disparage the law, to depreciate it. Why? Because it reminds his readers that angels had a part in giving the law, whereas they didn't have such a role in the case of the promise, which was granted directly by God to Abraham. So presumably, the the introducing of the angels tends to uh, depreciate the law. Moreover, uh, Moses was involved as mediator, and a mediator must involve two additional parties And that fact further emphasizes the indirectness of the law. That's the way most commentators handle verse 20. Uh, If not the indirectness of the law, maybe the unconditional character of the promise, or the dependent authority of Moses, you know, there are various ways of of looking at it. All of that, you know, makes sense, and it may be right, but uh, there are a number of difficulties. Uh, For example, I think there's some reasonable grounds for thinking that the angelic presence on Sinai was used by the Judaizers to exalt the law. Uh, In other words, I think we need to consider the 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 possibility that Paul is not the one who brings up the the question, but maybe the Judaizers were already talking about how great the law is. It was given by angels. And you get a sense of that also in the epistle to the Hebrews. And so Paul is responding to it. Um, Perhaps verse 20 ought not to be dissociated from the angels. And if uh, the reference to homesites, the mediator, is generic then you see the same charge could be brought against Jesus because he's also a mediator. Uh, I mention that because ha-de usually means that one. And the usual understanding of of the mediator as a generic idea. Anyone who's a mediator is a mediator of two is not the most natural way of reading this. Uh, What I would suggest is this. The Judaizers have exalted the Torah because of the fact that angels were involved in the giving of the law, and because of the character of the Mediator, Moses.